Welcome to the Courage to Lead interview series for leaders who empower others to create supportive and inclusive workplaces where people can do their absolute best. Each week I will interview a leader who epitomizes the ability to empower others to lead and create amazing workplaces, environments and communities because of that skill. In these interviews I try as much as possible to let our guests do all the talking as they are the stars and not me. I trust you enjoy the lessons and wisdoms each guest shares, and if you're like me, listen to the interviews a number of times to capture some of the true gems of leadership we hear each week. So welcome to the Courage to Lead interview series, um, someone who I've been really hoping to get, and I can't believe that he agreed to come onto the program, and I feel privileged that he, he has. Um, member for Sydney, uh, Member of Parliament, um, Alex Greenwich. Welcome to the program, Alex. Thanks very much, Alan. So, why I wanted to bring Alex onto the program um, is, uh, to me, he emulates all the things that uh, the Courage to Lead interview series is, is seeking to explore in identifying leaders who empower other people to lead and create inclusive and supportive workplaces or environments. And in Alex's case, he he's done that across a the environment of Sydney and probably across the environment of uh, New South Wales and Australia, really, when I think about some of the things you've done. Um, so why I asked Alex uh, initially is uh, I'm, I've known Alex in my policing life. Um, one of my good colleagues, Tony Crandell, recommended that um, uh, you would be a great presenter to our leadership workshops that we used to do at North Sydney and Chatswood. And I couldn't believe that you agreed to come and talk to our people probably two or three years in a row. Um, you're the only politician that I've ever invited um, because you're not, in my view, you're, you're different. You're, 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 you're the real deal. You're, you're a genuine person who, who seeks to the betterment of others. And when you spoke at those leadership days, um, you're just a, a different type of person that I want to explore well, who that is in the, in the interview today. Uh, you have a, a way of dealing with people who maybe or definitely don't agree with you um, and rather than get angry at them you seem to have this way of understanding them and forming a relationship with them which is so refreshing in today's world so that's why one of the main reasons I wanted to interview you today so I'll just go into a couple of little things because there's, there's, there's very scant details about you. You don't give anything much away on your um, on your Facebook page <laughs> and your Wikipedia page is pretty, pretty um, light on as well. But I'll just go through some highlights. So you were born in 1980. Um, you're from uh, Russian Georgian descent parents um, who uh, ended up in New Zealand and then came to Australia, I think when you were about nine years old. Um, uh, you became a member of parliament in 2012. So that's at 32 years of age. Uh, and your father was at that time the, father, the um, Honorary Consular General of Georgia up until from 2004 to 2013 and you come from um, a, a Georgian prince line in Russia uh, before that so it's a, it's a great story. Um, you went to Sydney Grammar and you're, you've got a Bachelor in Human Resource Management and Rus Russian Studies which I find incredibly interesting and you ran your own recruiting company between 1998 and 2012 called Winning Attitudes. And just some highlights, um, and you're married to um, your husband, Victor Hold, is that how you say it? Um, That's correct, yeah. um, uh, And some of the things you've accredited for, 
because you've been a member of parliament for 10 years, um, one of your platforms um, when you got elected was you wanted to start an inner city high school. You've done that. You got a historic apologies for the South Sea Islanders. Um, you've been a champion of social housing issues, reducing homelessness through the pandemic. Um, and you're a major supporter and an acknowledgement of uh, First Nations people as well. Um, you introduced the reproductive health care reform in 2017. You decriminalised abortion only three years ago in New South Wales. Um, and recently you um, got through the Animal Research Amendment Act. And I think I've read somewhere the euthanasia is legalised as well. So that's just a little bit of a bit of a snapshot um, about it. And I think one other thing was um, you're, as I said, you're a major supporter of social housing. So recently you had a development in Potts Point that had 15 new apartments that were social and affordable housing apartments as well. Um, so that's just a snapshot, so you don't have to go into it. I mean, there must be a lot. Um, um, but if I can take you there, do you want to take us back to the the, the young man that came to Australia in, uh, as, as a nine-year-old? Um, and how does... How does the man I've described in summary so far, where does, where does he come from? Where does that, how do you get built into the man you are? Um, well, and, and also, you know, um, so my dad is Russian Georgian background, my mum is American. Um, so I'm, you know, hugely proud of, of both sides of, of, of my family. And now my parents are, are happily uh, divorced. <laughs> okay, um, and yeah. I've made really, really great uh, relationships with both of them. Yeah. Um, Think about when I arrived in Sydney. We arrived in the in the late '80s, um, and prior to that, we lived in country New Zealand. So, you know, I I remember arriving, moving from the you know country, and if you can imagine country New Zealand, there's lots of sheep, rolling hills, cows, chickens, um, and then my parents had um, bought a, a place right in the CBD. So we moved right into central Sydney, and it was a massive shock. I remember, you know, one of the first things I did was playing with the intercom in the apartment because I thought, wow, this is cool. Um, and I kind of really fell in love with with being in the city. Um, you know, I, I loved, uh, you know, I loved uh, New Zealand and, and being in, in the country there, but um, I really fell in love with being in an inner city environment. Um, I liked its density. Uh, I liked its diversity. Um, you know, I would. I remember my you know, parents, you know, picking me up uh, from debating on a late on a Friday. Um, we'd you know drive home down William Street, and there'd be sex workers there, and they'd explain to me what the you know what what the sex worker does. Mm. Um, we would also be in the inner city. Be you know, you would see um, people who were homeless. You would see um, uh, people who were injecting drug users. Um, you could just really see people from all sorts of different multicultural backgrounds. So I guess that when, I, when I sort of think of, you know, what, what sort of made me passionate about Sydney, the communities I represent and champion, it would have to be that growing up in the inner city yeah. um, and being around that, uh, that diversity um, and my parents really being not afraid to talk about any issue that other people's parents may be um, a, a bit worried to, to uh, talk to a 10-year-old about. So that started at 10 years old, did it? 
That that was that was the comp- nine out of ten. Like yeah, that's really refreshing. Um, uh, so that that would be kind of it, it, the the account you just gave. That that those discussions would happen in the car on the way home. Would that you know what 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 would a normal night at the dinner table? What would the discussions around the dinner table oh. be? Yeah, it would be you know it could be a, about a, a range of issues. I've always been interested in you know in understanding the world. Um, uh, I've got um, uh, uh, you know grew up with two two wonderful brothers, um, uh, Victor and Nick. Uh, I'm the I'm the one in the middle. Um, I guess also growing up as as a middle child, I learned really good negotiation skills, which I um, ha- have been able to bring into. To my current job today, yeah. Um, but I guess I, I really love the fact that my family was just a family that was not afraid to talk about controversial issues. So you flagged the reproductive health care reform in your intro, the um, the bill to decriminalise abortion in New South Wales. My first exposure to political advocacy was around the issue of abortion, and I remember my grandmother Jackie, who who uh, lived in the US, shared with all of her grandchildren, um, I think I was 11 at the time, um, that she was just completely disgusted with then President George H.W. Bush's view um, about abortion, that he was anti-choice, anti-abortion. She shared a letter she wrote to him um, basically saying, it's, you know, it's my body, my choice, how dare you? Um, and, you know, my, my American side of the family is, a, uh, you know, is, is, is conservative, um, you know, conservative, middle class, well-to-do, um, but the fact that my grandmother was talking truth to power yeah. and was able to under, to explain to her grandchildren um, the importance of a, a woman's right to choose and have control over her body, um, you know, that for me, that was, that was really one of the things that um, my, my first, if I my first exposure to, to the political engagement came from her. Wow. So I normally um, ask a question, I think you just answered it. Um, your first, uh, to anyone on this program, what was your first exposure to leadership? Would it be your grandmother? Oh, look, I think it, it would have been, uh, definitely, you know, I had great grandparents, but also, you know, my parents, you know, I saw them you know, running a business in New Zealand, my mum making the choice to move the family to Australia um, to seek business opportunities and, and broaden the you know the potential of her of her kids. That was that was really important leadership. Um, you know, my dad, who comes from a, a refugee background, um, fighting against you know discrimination. Um, as a as a Russian immigrant in New Zealand to be a really successful business person, um, you know that was clearly a sign of leadership. So I never sort of think of leadership as a one-off incident. I always think of, of it as ongoing behaviours, and it's something that I you know was really fortunate to see from from both my parents and, and all of my grandparents. Okay. Um, you said your dad had a successful business in New Zealand, but his your intro talks about um, he was the honorary consular consular general for Georgia um, for about nine years, I think. So, what was 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 he a businessman and the consular general, or what? Do you want to? Yeah, so, so my parents, yeah, my, my parents both together um, in in New Zealand uh, ran gyms, Greenwich Fitness. Um, but also uh, recruitment, um, 
businesses in New Zealand and Australia. So they were focused on on you know helping people find jobs, and so that's what um, you know that that was the bulk of both of their careers. Um, and the the honorary consul general to Georgia was essentially a voluntary role that my dad did um, to build ties between Georgia and uh, and Australia. Okay. And so, would you did you have any part in in or any exposure to his role there? Uh, yeah, I would attend events um, uh, with him. I think you probably remember when we hosted the Rugby World Cup. Georgia participated, and were really a, um, a a crowd favourite. Even though they are, they didn't win the Rugby World Cup that was held in Australia, they were certainly one of the crowd's favourites. So you know, we was able to join them in matches and, and, and events there. Okay. Um, so what was it like? I hear you touched on it. Um, you were in the debating team, I think. Was so? Did you go to your your introduction talks about Sydney Grammar? Do you go there right from the word go and all the way through your schooling? Or no? So I, I went to um, originally went to Waikanae Public in um, in New Zealand, which is in the Kapiti Coast, just a bit north of Wellington. Um, I remember very distinctly at one show and tell um you know again like my parents people just didn't put boundaries on us so you know i i thought at, at like age six i'd bring to show and tell my barbie dolls um so i did that kids te- kids teased me so the next show and tell i decided to bring my ken dolls <laughs> <laughs> um then I, we came to we came to Sydney. Um, I went to Scots College in, in the Eastern Suburbs first, and then Sydney Grammar. Um, so it's really you know you know my, my parents really um, you know invested in, in private education, which was really expensive. Yeah. Um, uh, we have I mean we have a great public education system in New South Wales, um, but you know I, I, I do really respect the, the amount of you know, how hard my parents had to work to put us into schools like Scots College and Sydney Grammar. Very good. And um, anything particular, like this, as I said, your, your bio is really scant on some of the details. Um, anything in particular that stands out from your Sydney grammar years that you'd like to share? Uh, you know, yeah, I, like I forged really good friendships. It was a, um, a competitive environment academically, not so much on the sporting field as anyone who you know, follows private schools in Sydney. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I learned the power of an intellectual argument. I, um, uh, and, you know, it was a really diverse school. So, you know, able to deal, able to work with um, and learn with students from a variety of multicultural backgrounds. I think that was also really, really important. And, of course, the school, the high school's right in the city, right? So you, you're surrounded by... Um, uh, 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 amazing diversity everywhere you go. Okay. Um, so what happens? Um, was there any, any kind of leadership roles in the school that you or did anything stick out there? Oh look, I'm, you know, I wrote for the school paper. I was part of the debate, the, the debate team, which I really did enjoy a lot, um, and. Um, you know, just, just you know, it, I, I was not by any stretch of the imagination a, a top student at the school. I don't think I captained anything, um, but I always enjoyed whether it was the debating team or some sort of 
team sports. But my focus was, was always sort of working, you know, out alongside people. I had great, great fun with my friends. I was one of the few people who could actually walk to school and back because we lived in the city. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I, I look back at my time at Anthony Grammar with, with a great deal of fondness. Okay. You're very, your Wikipedia profile talks about, um, and I can't believe the way they say this, um, the only openly gay um, politician in New South Wales Parliament. Um, but it's you, you, 100% true because um, I'm, I'm the only openly gay member currently sitting in the Legislative Assembly, um, but in the New South Wales Upper House, we've, we've had a long history of, of openly gay um, elected members, so, you know... Shane Mallard is there, Penny Sharp is there, Mark Pearson is there, um, and um, you know, in, in, uh, uh, Don Harwin has served for a great deal of this term as well. Yeah. Um, and there were certainly many more before that. So um, I don't, I don't it, not everything on Wikipedia is always is always. That. Yeah, yeah. No, I, that's and that's why I, why I'm keen to, you know, who who was the real. The real deal for Alex Greenwich is, is why I wanted to interview you because all you know you, what you're sharing with us now is um is quite beautiful and and it kind of gives us an insight of where it comes from um you, you kind of I don't know whether you, do you know a lady called Christina Figueres um she was the the main lady behind the um the climate change um, agreements um in, yes yeah so she grew up in a in a political family in Cuba or somewhere like that, um, uh, some other, and her dad was, you know, a, a high-level politician, and their com- conversations around the table was very similar to what you're describing. So it's just interesting how someone like yourself forms the ability to negotiate, uh, argue a point, and form, you know, you know understand diversity, and um, and actually create a few a better a better future so um i just one of the things you just said um in your first days at uh at your new zealand public school you took your barbie dolls to school and your parents supported you that so you, did you know back then that you were you're a, a gay man or, or different or or did your mum and dad how, how do your mum and dad uh support you you know i i, I don't I didn't think I, I was, uh, I, I, you know, I, you know, different people have different experiences and journeys, um, but I don't think you, um, I mean, I certainly didn't think about sexuality at, at that age. I just sort of thought, um, you know, the Barbie dolls are cool. I like to change the clothes that they wear, dress them up, um, and um, the, you know, G.I. Joes or, you know, building blocks, that kind of stuff just didn't interest me. Um, you know, I, I have a, a cousin, Stephanie, who's a lesbian, and I remember one Christmas party, she got, like, a Barbie... She, she got a, like, a, a, a dollhouse, I think, and I got, like, a cricket bat. Yeah. And both of us were in tears and outrage. Um, <laughs> she wanted the sports equipment, I wanted the dolls. Yeah. Um, and then we swapped. Yeah. Um, but, but I guess I, I think of it in a different way. My parents never let, never made me think there was absolutely anything wrong without with me exploring different parts of my personality. Um, and part of my personality was I, um, you know, I didn't play with the, 
traditional things that are, you know, that a that a boy is expected to play with. Yeah. Um, you know, at kindy, I remember my parents have been to be called by the um, uh, by the like supervisors because I was dressing up as Mary Poppins and opened up a umbrella and was jumping off um, tables. Mm. But again. Like certainly didn't get in trouble for that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I really, I really benefited from from parents who are extremely um, open minded and supportive, and and just let me flourish um, to, to to be who I wanted to be. Yeah, well, thank you for sharing that. Like, um, I've you know, I've, uh, you know, not not all, everyone's journey is so supportive. So um, and and I'd have to, you'd have to accept that you're a role model for so many people. You know. For everyone, really, because of uh, the way you um, openly share your life uh, and and how inclusive you are in in and how you get to the outcomes that you get to. Um, so let's just look at how. That, so it sounds like you ran your like you finished school, and from nineteen ninety eight to two thousand and twelve, you ran your own recruitment agency called Winning Attitudes. Um, is there anything that sticks out about that? Um, that time? Answering the phone for, you know, 12 years saying winning attitudes. This is Alex. It kind of formed a very um, positive thing in my uh, positive way to start the day. Um, but, you know, I worked with, I worked with both of my parents. Um, firstly, my dad, my mum and my dad. And then um, uh, my mum continued on the company after, after my parents' divorce. Um, I, you know, I learned a lot from working with them. Um, and I think working in recruitment and human resources, you really learn a lot about people's motivation, what's important to them. You know, a, a job is a really important part of a person's life. It provides them with um, dignity, purpose, salary, um, sometimes all of those things, sometimes just one of those things. Um, and you get to meet so many people. Um, so, you know, during that time, I learned a lot about people. I learn a lot about the different things that motivate people. Um, I learned also, you know, if we go back to, to sort of that time, we're talking about, um, you know, around 2000 to 2010 or so, we really just started to talk about workplace discrimination. Um, and, um, you know, I'm, I'm particularly discrimination against LGBTI people. And, and now we have... You know, every major firm has a diversity and inclusion strategy and policy and celebrates and actively seeks to recruit LGBTI people. Um, but I remember a really distinct moment where a client who shall remain nameless, um, I had put forward a, a, a good candidate, a young gay guy, and, uh, you know, perfect CV would be great at the job. Um, and the feedback from the client was, well, he's really good, but, you know, based on his lifestyle, he'll probably have, you know, big Sunday nights and arrive late to work on Mondays. Yeah. Um, my response to that was uh, never to work with that client again. Yeah, okay. Good on um, you. Uh, but, you know, now that you would like to think that sort of stuff would never, um, would, would not happen, um, it certainly does. But it was, it was a really interesting and evolving time of, of workplace culture where people started to call things out, um, where, where corporates could actually see the importance and, you know, a bit of affirmative action recruiting women um, 
uh, rather than, um, you know, blokes hiring blokes with the same education background as themselves. Um, so it was a really interesting transitional time um, in the industry. It was as call centres took off, um, so that's where we did a great deal of our recruitment. Uh, it's where people sort of got more savvy with investing, so we did lots in, in, in stockbroking. Um, uh, I, you know, oh, so I, I really, um, I, I really enjoyed that time. Also, I was really fortunate, you know, it was, you know, working with my parents in a family business. Um, that I was able to use the resources to be able to support um, passion uh, initiatives like the marriage quality campaign. So that, you know, I started um, uh, volunteering with Australian Marriage Quality around 2007. I couldn't have done that without um, the support of my parents and the support of, of winning attitudes um, and being able to use winning attitudes resources for that and helping to professionalise the, the, the movement early on. That's, um, you covered so much there. Uh, let's take it back. I, I love the fact, every, everyone that I've interviewed on this program, uh, and that's probably why I've select, selected them, they have, a, they have I've, I've described it sometimes as a, if you, like a sailing boat, the keel underneath, like a, an unerring keel of values. And you just talked about your values and the courage to stick up for your values when you talked about the client um, who said no to the, the young gay guy who was the best candidate because of lifestyle and then your next words were I vowed never to work for that client again. Um, so that's your values coming through um, which is, you know, hats off to you Alex. That's, um, that's, it wouldn't have, probably wouldn't have been easy because it, maybe that client might have been um, a good contributor to the business uh, and you to, to say no or yeah, look, I mean, I've just, I've just found that, you know, I can work with pretty much anyone, um, but I'm always going to be uh, open with, with, with my values and, and my expectations. You know, I, I think of a, a, a you know, I, I obviously have a really strong working relationship with the New South Wales government, um, and we, we work closely together on a number of important reforms, um, but... You know, I, I think of a meeting I had just yesterday with the Transport Minister's Office on compensation for taxi drivers and the current package which is being put forward is completely insufficient um, and, you know, it will, will destroy people's lives. Yeah. Um, and along with the other independents, we just made it clear. Yeah. You made what? supporting this. It's not oh, yeah. getting through. Yeah. With the other independents, like, we're not supporting this. It's not getting through. Go back to the drawing board and come back to us. Yeah. Um, so I'm always I'm always going to be open and direct, um, and let let people know, um, you know what I'm uh, what I'm thinking, what I'm feeling. I, I get really frustrated with um, colleagues, stakeholders who don't tell you what they want, yeah. who aren't direct. Yeah. Um, I think that's a it's a it's a really important um, part of leadership is to be open and direct and not be afraid of it. Very good. Um... Is there anything uh, you talked about? I, I can I can see where, as you talk to our listeners today, and you talk to me, I can see how you were made. <laughs> like you, um, like the I think you summed it up. You like you, you came from a a, par- a family that were prepared to talk about anything, the good and the bad, uh, the the challenging and the not challenging. 
But you all in the, in your parent in the winning life, winning attitudes business, you are speaking to people every day and learning what motivates people, um, and and doing that day in and day out. So you can see how you understand you understand people probably better than most. And now in the environment you're in, uh, you probably that's taken it to another level. When you talked about, um, and I love this part of your because you're just kind of bringing it out as you as you're talking about it. Um, you wanted to be involved in your passions. So your pa passions in 2007 was the marriage equality um, movement. So you're you're at that stage. You're in your in your family business. Did did you get any blowback then from clients of your family business or people um, external to you? You shouldn't be doing that, Alex. Or, or did you? Is there anything you can share about that time? Yeah. Look, I mean. I I worked with some of the biggest players in corporate Australia, um, and I built good relationships. All my clients knew I was a, a, a you know I was openly gay man, um, uh, uh, and you know I, I remember early on reaching out to my clients to get them to support marriage equality and to recognise. Um, their stuff as being married if they got married overseas yeah. um, and was able to get uh, Commonwealth Bank, Westpac, and Qantas um, and a few others um, all on board with committing to that in 2007. Now this is a time when you know not even the Greens were talking about marriage equality. Yeah. Um, the both major parties opposed the reform, unions opposed the reform. Um, support amongst the community was low because it wasn't being talked about. Yeah. Um, but I was able to talk to you know clients who I built a working relationship with about um, why this reform was important, why it would be a good thing for them to do, why it's meaningful to their staff to have that recognition where government is failing. Yeah. Um, and and was able to successfully advocate for that. Um, you know, I remember it was the first time I was kind of mentioned in a newspaper was once we. Um, we're able to achieve that with a critical mass of, of corporates, yep. um, and that the Herald um, ran a ran a story about that. So, um, you know, I was I've always I was able to actually, if anything, I was able to leverage off the relationships I had built with corporates to be able to get their support. And I think it was because I was able to communicate it to them, not in a political context, but as a you know a, a, an important. Um, an important thing for their employees and an important uh, value for them to stand up for, the equal treatment of their staff. And it would be, would it be true to say also, like you, you use the word a lot, um, uh, you had a, had a very good, strong relationship with these these corporate entities and they just, would it, would it be true to say they respected Alex Greenwich? I'd like to think so. Um, you know, I, I, I've always... Pro, I, you know, I guess the way I grew up with my parents, um, I've also learned not to be intimidated by people. So, you know, I, I, and often when you're intimidated to do something or afraid to do something, you're just not going to achieve it. Yeah. So I've never really understood the value of being intimidated by something. Mm. <laughs> so it's much easier to just ask the question. Yeah. Um, build the relationship and ask the question. Um, 
be uh, and, and be direct. So uh, that that's what I have found has always worked. Uh, and, and you know, also sometimes if you're intimidated by something or someone, um, and you end up taking that course of action you want to take, you can do it in such a ham-fisted way. Um, it's much better to, to treat everyone as an equal human being, not be intimidated, um, and work with people to achieve the outcomes you want to achieve. And, you know, that's how I dealt with my business career. That's how I dealt with um, my uh, advocacy career. That's how I deal with, um, you know, with, with my political career. Okay. Um... Where does uh, where does Victor fit into all, all of this? Um, where does he come into the story? So I met Vic um, on the dance floor at Slide, which is a gay bar in um, in Sydney. I would have we met around two thousand and eight. Um, he okay. just moved to Australia yep. to work for a, a investment bank. Um, I, you know, I remember very distinctly him coming up to me, putting his hand out, saying, you know, hi, I'm Vic, nice to meet you. But, wow, what a, what a gentleman. Um, and, you know, it was kind of a, a, a love and first sight thing. Um, we, you know, we dated for a while. We're on, on again, off again for a while. Um, but it was the moment in which we both accepted we loved each other more than the things that irritate us about the other person. Yeah. <laughs> that we realised we could we could live together um, and we could get married. That's beautiful. And you got married um, in Argentina, wasn't it? Is that that what I've read? Yeah, we, we got we got married in Argentina in May two thousand and twelve. It was a country that would welcome us uh, to to get married. We were the the first um, foreign couple to marry in. Um, Buenos Aires province because okay. there was a ban on foreign people who weren't Argentinian citizens or <clears throat> residents getting married in Argentina. They lifted that ban to allow for same-sex couples from countries where it's not legal to get married. Um, so we worked with advocates on the ground to be able to achieve that. Um, I made sure I uh, I locked Vic in by marrying him um, uh, before I ran for elected office. Yeah. Um, I was probably thinking about it at the time and then um uh and then after we're married i kind of said okay i'm actually going to do this thing okay um, so uh it was probably a bit of a trick um but you know i i didn't do my job without him yeah uh he uh you know we're complete equals and partners um we motivate each other we look after each other we look after each other's health we have fun together um, yeah, like any couple, we you know we we can we do have arguments, but I think that's like, that can be a healthy thing. Yeah, that um, comes with the territory. And, <laughs> yeah, and, you know, um, and there's another one else I'd rather spend time with. Gotcha. You're a you're a very decent human being, Alex. Um, and that's uh, I can just um, I think all of us can feel feel how how normal uh, normal's the wrong word. How wonderful that is um, that you have. Someone in your life, that, that's what the relationships are all about. Someone that enriches you, challenges you, supports you. Um, so, you know, if I've read something about Victor, like you, you just said he was um, an investment banker, worked for an investment bank when he first came to Australia, but he works for Salesforce now, doesn't he? So at a pretty high level in that. So some of the conversations um, and the mental stimulation you must be able to give each other 
from your respective backgrounds must be just gobsmacking. <laughs> I would imagine you have you both bring something pretty powerful intellectually to the table. Yeah, but you know, sometimes we just want to talk about RuPaul's Drag Race. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, we can we can watch that, laugh at it, and chat about it. So you know, we can have a intellectually stimulating conversation. Um, we can just you know, uh, you know, lie next to each other, read, and not talk. Yeah. Um, you know, or, or we can just you know watch trashy TV and have the best time. That's lovely. That's lovely. Um. You're, you're, I'm just sure, readers, we haven't scripted this at all, but you're kind of taking me there already. So um, uh, I had no idea when you met Victor actually at all. So um, like you've talked about how you went into the... At 2007, you entered the marriage equality advocacy, I think you called it. Um, and then you meet Victor in 2008 and you're married in 2012. And then you spring it on Victor um, using your words that I'm, I'm going to run for parliament. Um, how does that... How, how like you obviously uh, I, I'd rather hear it from you. How do you um, end up becoming I don't know what's what's the word having a relationship with Clover Moore? Um, uh, how does that happen? And how does she endorse you to become her replacement? And I think in your words, um, now there's two of us. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. So I mean, so Clover became the member for Bly the year we moved to Sydney, which was 1987. Um, so my entire time um, living in Sydney, in Sydney, Clover was the local member. Um, and, you know, she was in that capacity as an independent, able to get things done, um, progress controversial reforms, whether they be drug law reform, same-sex adoption, um, anti-vilification protections, really look after her, her community, particularly during the heart of the AIDS crisis. Yeah. Um, she, um, a truly remarkable leader and person um, uh, in every sense of the word. So obviously I was, you know, a huge, a huge fan and supporter of Clovis for, for a very long time. It was my um, LGBTI advocacy um, and around the marriage equality campaign, where I was able to work with her. She's probably, I mean, some, some historian needs to do this work. She's probably the first elected official to publicly back same-sex marriage um, uh, and work within the city of Sydney to have a, a, a registration process um, and then, um, you know, raise the issue in, in New South Wales Parliament um, and so I was able to work with her as a, as a champion for reform um, at a time when not only was she the member for Sydney, um, but also the Lord Mayor of Sydney. So the Lord Mayor of Australia's global city, back in the LGBTI community, back in marriage equality, was, was when I um, was how I got to work with her and her team. Um, and, you know, I'm someone who really values democracy. Yeah. Um, I think, uh, you know, it's a fundamental principle that we have to every day fight to protect and uh, we can never take for granted and when the federal government uh, introduced legislation that passed that said Clover could not be the member for Sydney um, and the Lord Mayor uh, despite having been democratically elected to both roles yeah. um, by her constituents knowing she was doing both roles I really felt like my vote had been taken away 
and um, I emailed out their office and I said, I feel like my vote has been taken away. Um, what can I do? Yeah. Um, and uh, I had a bit of a local profile because of the marriage equality advocacy and that soon turned into a conversation of, yeah, well, what I could do is I could actually put my hand up um, to run for the... Um, for the, the seat of Sydney at the by-election. Um, now, uh, anyone who uh, who knows or has worked with Clover knows she um, she is uh, across the detail, um, wants to uh, make sure you can do the job and the work, wants to make sure you've got the, the right values to represent the area. So I spent about three months in, um, in her electorate office, which later became my electorate office, um, volunteering, understanding everything about the concerns with changes to local bus stops through to drug law reform, um, relationship with the police, um, uh, the importance of the injecting centre, and um, you know after a uh, you know after three pretty intense months of, of learning, um, uh, her staff now my staff basically uh, gave me the job and um, said, to, said to Clover, yeah, we like this guy, um, we, um, we can work with him. Well, and so then, you know, I was really fortunate and it was ex- an extreme act of generosity that on Clover's last day in New South Wales Parliament, um, after such a, a trailblazing and historic career, that she used that moment to publicly endorse me um, to, to be her successor. Um, and the, the soon after that, we had a by-election, which I, you know, I, I won, and I, you know, I won that by-election because of Clover's endorsement um, and um, and the support um, that she really uh, inspired across the Sydney electorate. I well, it's wonderful. I've, I don't think many people would know the story, and I haven't. I haven't heard this this story before. Um, I think you're being very modest. Uh, if I if I just look at that story a little bit, um, there must be something about Alex Greenwich um, when you're volunteering for three months that Clover Moore staff say we can work with this guy. <laughs> what 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 was it? What do you think it was? Like that, you can just imagine how 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 protective they are of Clover Moore and how they don't want things to change. And then all of a sudden, you know, over a three month period, they say we can work with this guy. Where does how does where does that come from? Well, I don't know. It's a question for them. Um, I think you know. I would like to think it was um, my open mindedness to issues, my work ethic, um, uh, my ability to. Um, grasp complex issues and communicate them to people, um, the, um, uh, having a non-judgmental view of the world, um, even when people disagree with you. I, I would like to think it's all of those things. Um, uh, and, I, you know, it must have been part of it where they thought I could get elected. So, you know, that, I, was, I was a good product. <laughs> and um, how does that make you feel... Personally, when Clover herself, Clover Moore herself says, "Well, I want you to be my successor." You know what? I mean, you know, you know, you just talking to you today. It's obviously you're not a, you're not egotistical. 
you're not, um, well, I don't know what, what some of the, not, the unkind words around what that means. Um, you're not self-centered. Uh, but wh- what did what did Alex Greenwich, the person, think? Clovermore wants me to replace her. What, what what did that mean to you? Yeah, look, I mean, I know I said that I'm, you know, I, I pride myself on really getting intimidated, um, but that was intimidating. Yeah. You know, a a, a, a political leader, you know, a, 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 a you know a national leader on, on many on many fronts, um, saying. Uh, uh, this dude could do my job. Um, really, um, it was an intimidating thing. Um, my response to that was to work extremely hard to make sure I won and then to really make sure I had a really strong work ethic once I started the job. One thing people sometimes forget about politics is it's actually a job um, and being a parliamentarian it's actually a job and you've actually got to work hard. Um, I remember early on Clover saying to me that she, you know, she tries to take Sundays off, but I wouldn't be, but I won't be able to. <laughs> um, meaning I've got to work seven days a week, um, and you know, be, be very focused on it. And fortunately, um, you know, I, uh, I, I really love my job. I just spent, was able to take a bit of holidays this year um, uh, away in July. And I actually missed my job. Okay. So, yeah, that's a, it's a good sign that, you know, I've, I've, I've come to really love the work that I do. Um, and, uh, you know, really, really grateful to have Clovis back in, you know, back in 2012. And that we have such a strong working relationship today. Okay. And how long was the um, by-election process? Once she gave you the nod in Parliament to the election day, how, how long was that? It was something like three weeks. It was oh my a really God. tight time. The, the Liberal Party thought that they had it in the bag and they just wanted to rush. Um, uh, she, they had no idea that, that she planned to um, uh, endorse me. Yeah. But again, you know, like, yes, Clover had done her due diligence in scrutinising me, making sure I had a good work ethic, making sure we shared similar values. But that election I was elected. Because Clover forced me. Okay. Um, I remember handing out, um, you know, flyers at, uh, you know, at a train station one morning, and some uh, dude comes up to me, takes a flyer, and says, "Oh yeah, I'm going to vote for this guy. He's the one that, that Clover wants me to vote for." Okay. Uh, <laughs> and I said, "Oh, it's actually me." <laughs> and the guy's like, "Oh, it doesn't matter. You know, like it's it's whoever Clover says uh, we're going to we're going to vote for." And, and that is just a sign of how well respected she is um, in the community, how people trust her and her judgment. Um, and so that's that's really something for me to uh, uh, to be ambitious in aspiring to. Okay, beautiful. Well, that's taken us up to like yeah, you you've now been a member of Parliament for ten years. I think I saw something on your Facebook page um, recently that you're coming up to your ten your ten year anniversary. Um, and it's coming up to election time again. So I don't want to kind of go down a political path, but um, it's obvious, you know, when I did that introduction um, and as you've recounted some of the stories so far, that you're an advocate for issues uh, where, I think you talked about it before, um, where you want to fight for the, to protect the, the values of democracy. 
Um, and in some, in looking at some of those advocacies, one of the people I interviewed the other day used this term, a voice for the voiceless. Um, how do you, how do, as a politician, how do you frame what you're going to take on? Because some, you know, from a personal point of view, uh, you know, they are a voice for the voiceless. A lot of these things that you that you've taken on and and got across the line. Um, so how do you take it on, uh, and and what frames what you take on? So in my electoral office, I have this uh, portrait of a guy who is a homeless, injecting drug user who was in and out of jail, um, loved his uh, loved his his dog. Um, so it's a portrait of, of him and his dog. He, he's, he's since passed away. Um, but it's a constant reminder of who I actually work for. So I don't, you know, my lecture is so wonderfully diverse and we've got every profession, really wealthy people, um, uh, uh, you, know, uh, you know, people hugely successful in all, in all meanings of that word. Um, but, you know, our job in Parliament is to think of everybody. It's to uh, it's to think of the people who the people who break the laws, um, the people who have addiction issues, the people who, who don't have a home. They're the ones who actually need us the most, um, and that we have to work the, the hardest for. Uh, and there are some really challenging times in in this gig where you see, fundamentally see um, uh, democracy being attacked. Whether it was like that big clover bill. Or whether it is the um, you know the, the recent um, anti-protest legislation to stop the um, the, the, the um, some of the climate protests um, from from occurring and you know interrupting people's day-to-day life. Um, you know, I, I think of no war being painted on the opera house. Mm. That they were right then. We look back at that as a as an image. Um, of a strong message that we should have been adopted in, in the Iraq war. But under the laws that this government has just passed, that would be considered illegal and a person would be jailed for years and fined, you know, tens of thousands of dollars. We look at the first people who marched in Mardi Gras, um, the work, you know, they were right. Yeah. <laughs> Yet we sought to stop them. And now we're introducing laws which would have even further penalised them. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, I, I, my job is to think of the, the, the importance of making sure people, um, people who have a voice, that their voice is protected and their voice is to protect to protest, even if it's against me, um, uh, or to make sure that, you know, the, the people who, who are not even on the electoral roll, who wouldn't even know how to vote, that, you know, that someone's also looking after them. So you've got to think about everybody um, when you're dealing with legislation. Well, okay. What would be in the ten years um, if you had uh, maybe just limit you to two? What what would what would be the two most um, heartwarming things you've done as a member of Parliament for Sydney, for you personally? Look, I would say really the. It's really hard to narrow it down to two. Um, but 
Uh, look, I would say the two pieces of law reform which I have legislated for have been really important. Um, Decriminalising abortion in New South Wales um, and uh, taking stigma out of women making their own reproductive health care choices um, and really, um, you know, fulfilling um, advocacy instilled in me by my grandmother. That yeah. was something that um, it, that was a, a very, um, a very, you know, overwhelming and important moment. And the amount of women who come up to me and tell me about the uh, abortion that they had, um, how it was important to them in their life, um, how it meant that that because they had an abortion at a certain point meant that they could have kids, they could actually have kids later on. Um, uh, and that they just don't want government in their bodies, um, sort of is really, really validates that every day. Um, and then more recently, um, passing the Voluntary Assistance to Dying Bill, um, that was huge. You know, parliaments do, well, not only parliaments, but society does not like talking about death. You know, um, we, we want to think it's not going to happen, or when it happens, it's going to be beautiful. Um, but it's that is not always the case, yeah. uh, and there are people out there who have um, who have horrendous, cruel, and painful deaths that they know are going to happen because they have a terminal illness, um, uh, and they know how it's going to end. So, giving that cohort of very vulnerable, dying people the ability to go out on their own terms in a safe and regulated way um, has been. Uh, hugely, hugely impactful. And, you know, again, the amount of people who stop me on the street and tell me about a loved one who died terribly and how much this reform would have meant to them um, or people who know that they've got a a diagnosis where it's not going to end well, um, the fact that they know that once voluntary dying is in place means that they'll have an option and some control. Um, That's, you know, that's, um, that's, that's hugely hugely meaningful. Um, so I would say it's been really those two that I feel are, are really the important, two of the most important things. Um, I think uh, what I also um, <laughs> like about those two reforms is I was told I would never be able to achieve both of those in the one term of parliament, um, that these are too controversial, so the major parties don't support them um, and you're not going to be able to do this. And multiple colleagues in this building told me this. Um, but we achieved both, um, you know, two years apart. Well done. And it sounds like um, I can relate to those words. Uh, if someone tells you you can't, well, just watch me. <laughs> you know, it's um, why not kind of thing. You know, why, and, uh, and I love that. I mean, my response is often, well, you're certainly entitled to that view. <laughs> My view of it is I'm going to achieve these things so you can join me or not. Yeah. Um, and I think people have learned it's better to join me. Yeah, good, good. And I think you, I mean, I limited you to two, but uh, the the marriage equality um, outcome would have had to have the same uh, comments behind it. You'll never get that across the line. Or was that was that similar? No, I mean, I, yeah, look, I was, you know, we were always, not only were we told it wouldn't happen, um, uh, we lost a lot. Yeah. Um, you know, one thing I, 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 if I'm afraid of anything, it's afraid of losing. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
we, we lost a lot in the marriage equality campaign, but we always lost forward. Mm-hmm. So we made sure within every defeat we had inched further in terms of the numbers, we had built support, and there was a reason for bringing something to a vote, to, to flesh out support or to expose opponents or to show forward progress. Um, so the marriage equality, the passage of marriage equality was, was a huge thing. Um, I think the, the success of the postal survey was a huge thing for Australia. It was something that we really united behind and we we didn't just vote on marriage equality. Like we, we voted on Australia's you know, values of fairness and equality and, um, and Australia was, it endorsed those. You just took me, uh, and again, we're not scripted, but um, you've taken me into an area that I wanted to explore and it kind of it kind of relates to the picture on your wall that you talked about, the homeless guy. Um, but before I go there, so I, I want to talk about, um, uh, like one of your latest things on your Facebook page was around um, social, social and affordable housing and, you, and your motivation behind representing people, everyone, I think you talked to every, you represent everyone, and is a, is a homeless guy with his dog um, who's uh, in and out of jail and with drugs. Before we go there, I want you to I'll give you time to think about uh, about um, about whether that's an issue that you're taking that you are taking on, which I think you are. Um, one of the things I remember you talking about, and you just talked about, well, you're either with me or you're not with me, uh, and I'm going to push push um, till I uh, get get an outcome. I remember when you talked to us in our police leadership workshops, and this is what really struck struck me about you. You had this account where a, a polit- political rival um, was quite incensed that you were a gay man and sent you some um, horrible pictures, um, quite inflammatory. That most of us would have uh, written that person off, and you, know, you didn't, you never mentioned who it was. Um, but your way of dealing with that person was to uh, get to know them, uh, get to understand their motivations, and then I think the story was down the track you became uh, respected allies or, or, or at least people that worked together and understood each other. How does that happen? How do, how do you learn to, to essentially turn the other cheek and, um, and build a relationship with someone that's being so inflammatory towards you? Well, look, you know, no one's perfect. I'm certainly not perfect. There have been times where I've lost my temper or done something wrong. Um, I would want to be forgiven in those circumstances. So that means I also then need to um, forgive people who may act in inappropriate ways uh, towards me at times. Um, you know, everyone is human. And it's, it's actually something that uh, it is it, something that people who engage with politicians often forget. Politicians are actually human beings. Um, and human beings are flawed, we make mistakes, uh, we have a range of motivations, uh, and we can also change our mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um, I just treat all my colleagues as you know, equal human beings um, who are working hard for their community. We are going to have disputes from time to time, um, but we're also we're in this really funky workplace where we can actually learn from each other. Um, work with each other and, and make a real difference. So if your focus is on the outcome, um, 
you can get through some of the, the, the bruising behaviour. Um, and it's certainly, you're going to get less and less of it if you're treating people well yourself. So um, that's something that I always seek to do. I mean, it's so, like, it's so easy in my job to get outraged at someone, to call someone a name, to get on a loud hailer. It can feel good to do that, but it's not going to actually achieve anything. So, like, I'm, I'm not here to feel good. I'm, I'm here to do things. Um, so that's always going to take the priority for me. Well done. And is, is that just something that you've built through trial and error? Or can you attribute, attribute those highly kind of um, self-awareness skills to someone else or other people that you've um, worked with over the time? Look, I, I think it's, it's a bit of trial and error, you know, moving from an, an advocate, um, you know, someone outside of parliament on, a, on the loud hailer to the person actually in the chamber doing the work um, was, was quite, quite a shock to the system. Um, and quite frankly, I've, I've really learned a lot from my colleague, Greg Piper, the independent member for Wake Macquarie. Um, Greg is someone who calls a spade a spade, treats everyone equally and fairly, um, is respected across the parliament as a, as a decent guy, uh, focused on outcomes. So he is definitely someone I've learned a great deal from. Beautiful. And it's funny, um, like this interview series is about uh, inclusiveness and support and equally and fairly just... Um, uh, drive you, <laughs> so it's uh, it's interesting. So I'm giving you, hopefully, giving you a chance to think about um, social and affordable housing, and uh, and uh, uh, you said it at some stage through um, our interview today. It's just not right that um, there's so many people um, without, you know, on the verge of being homeless or around. Have you got any um, any viewpoint or any? Any uh, desires in that direction? Yeah, well, look, you know, I um, was really fortunate after um, we succeeded with the marriage equality campaign that Blackfella Films and SES came to me to be part of their second series of Filthy, Rich and Homeless, um, which I avoided saying yes to for a very, very long time because I was just completely exhausted from the campaign. Yeah. Um, but, but finally agreed to do it. Um, and it was a series where for 10 days we're taken out of our comfort zone, like quite a nice comfort zone. Um, everything is taken away from you. You know, your phone, your wedding ring, your clothes. Um, you um, are basically dumped on a street corner and you're now homeless. Um, and throughout that series, you, I was able to, to meet with other people who had become homeless, um, was able to go to refuges, stay in boarding houses, interact with rough sleepers. Um, and you know, I learned through that process, like I've, I've always been an advocate for greater action on homelessness, greater funding for homelessness services, more social and affordable housing. It's a really easy thing to say as a politician. Um, but... But during that series, the light bulb moment from me was that anybody can become homeless. Yeah. Um, it all it is is you know a series of misfortunes. It could be health issue. It could be you know drug or gambling addiction. It could be a family issue. It could be you've lost your job. You've 
made a poor investment, um, things completely outside of, of a person's control, or, or things completely within a person's control, but you know, it was a series of mistakes. Um, so I, I learned that anybody can become homeless. And as a result of that fact, uh, and it is a fact, um, we need to make sure that we have a safety net. And that safety net is ensuring that we have not only, you know, if someone's homeless, what they need is a home. Um, uh, and then it's also the type of home. So the supports, you know, the, the drug and alcohol services, the gambling services, the professional um, development services, um, the counselling and psychological support that people need. So it's a fundamental uh, safety net that, that we need to provide because it can happen to anyone. Um, and, um, and if you don't think it could happen to you, next time you see a rough sleeper, just ask them yeah. you know, what their background is. Um, and, and they will tell you a wild story. So the, you know, the, the it's, and you know, New South Wales has come a long way. Um, I've really pushed the government to make sure we have targets in reducing rough sleeping. We've exceeded those targets. We are investing more and more in, in social and affordable housing, but there's still a lot more to do. Yeah, okay. I, I think I interviewed Trina Jones just recently, the CEO of um, Homelessness New South Wales, and I think she came out with, you know, the common figure talked about is um, the waiting lists are 10 years. Um, you know, there's 50,000 people on the waiting list, um, but I think she's got a figure that talks about um, uh, on the current rate of growth of social housing, it's that, that 10 years could be 70 years. That uh, you could be on that list for. Um, so it's refreshing to hear someone like yourself um, having having that viewpoint on it. And uh, and I I didn't I don't think I've seen that anywhere in, that you were on, were on that uh, filthy rich and homeless. So how did, what was your worst experience? Like ten days is a long time to be on your own. Um, in this... well, to be honest, you know, the, the the worst experience was in a boarding house, and you just realise how because of that lack of social housing, people, you know, whose only income is their disability pension, to have a roof over their head, they're basically in some run-down, shitty boarding house where the boarding house operator is taking all of their disability pension and providing them with a cockroach-infested room, um, uh, you know, which which is horrific. Um, so that was, you know, it was the... It was the part of the series where I actually had a roof over my head that was the scariest wow. because it was the type of roof that is available to some people is actually not as safe as being on the street. And that was a really um, a confronting moment. And I think the listeners would be um, alarmed that just, I can hear it in your voice um, about that. All right, well, we're... Um... We've pretty well gone through most of it. I, I noticed on one of your social media posts um, you're with councillor, I think it's Imelda Davis, at a vegan food market. Um, um, uh, it's what people eat is, uh, is quite often contentious, but are you um, a plant-based person uh, by choice? I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not vegan. I, I, um, I, have, I do have times where I, where I go vegetarian for, for periods of time. Um, I make sure that I always eat, um, uh, you know, sustainably sourced food. Um, uh, uh, so, but you know, it's, it's one of my imperfections is that I am uh, I am not vegan or, or, or vegetarian. 
I'm not saying that's an imperfection at all. No, I was just um, curious um, uh, that you, you support all, all things. And, and I think in your... And probably why I went there, you talked about in your, in your um, uh, summary of what you've done over the 10 years, you're a major advocate for climate change issues as well. Yeah. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, look, I mean, I'm really encouraged by the progress we're seeing, seeing federal aid. Um, you know, and I've worked so closely with my independent colleagues in the New South Wales Parliament towards meaningful action on climate change. And where that has to start is with the communities that are going to be impacted um, by a transition from coal to renewables. So our focus in, in this parliament has been to make sure that communities in the Hunter region and in other regions across New South Wales um, are given the support for economic diversification, new well-paid jobs. Um, so, you know, as the economy and energy supply changes, we're not leaving anyone behind. Um, so that's really been our, our focus. Often you just hear we need to reduce emissions and invest in renewables and you forget about the people that will be left behind in that process um, for a transition to renewables um, and a reduction of emissions to be sustainable in the long term, you've got to take everybody with you. And it's been often those people who are in coal-dependent communities that have been forgotten about in those climate wars, um, and it's been a priority of the independence in the New South Wales Parliament to, to focus on that cohort. Well done to you. Again, um, I use the term quite a lot, but I mean it. Um, hats off to you. Like you just use that term, not leaving anyone behind, and you've you've, you've related that on, in this example to uh, the communities relying on coal. Um, but you could say that same thing about um, about the abortion stuff, about the about the the equality of marriage, about the social housing. It's not leaving anyone behind, um, and behind your motivations becoming a politician and what and doing what you do. So look, I'm very conscious um, of the time. As you're a member of parliament, you've been kind enough to give us uh, just over an hour of your time so far. Is there um, winding up? If if someone out there uh, had a view to to take on um, uh, a leadership role such as you have done um, and continue to do, what would your advice to them be? What 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 would you what what say three tips would you give them? Well, I, would, I wouldn't give three tips. I'll just give one tip, and it's the tip I gave myself when I when I ran. And it's just don't be afraid. But you know, it's as simple as that. Just don't be afraid. And when I'm you know, dealing with a confronting or controversial issue, which could be a bit difficult or challenging, um, uh, I just tell myself, you know, toughen up, Alex. Don't be afraid. I can't imagine. I mean, I mean, we're all, as you said, we're all human. Um, but after talking to you today, uh, I can't imagine you're ever afraid, really. Um, so it's so. Um, thank you for being so honest. Uh, and thank you for living up to all the expectations I had that this interview would do um, uh, to kind of expose who you really are. And I think you've been quite honest and um, generous with who you really are. So um, I really appreciate that. At, uh, I'm just about to end the interview, but if when this podcast does get played, it will be played on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. So I just ask... Um, I just ask that uh, anyone who, who um, 
listens to the interview, rates it and reviews it because um, that will get your message out to a lot more people. And I think your message is so refreshing and needs to be shared with a lot of people. So thank you again, Alex Greenwich, Member of Parliament. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. Thanks, Alan. All the best. Ta. Great. Have Ta. Ta. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Well, I think we'd all agree that Alex Greenwich, MP, is a marvellous human being and how privileged were we to hear everything that he has to say and how the human being, Alex Greenwich, was actually developed over many years in work, working with his family and then working for, with the community where he has an overall theme that no one gets left behind. So I'll leave you with this. Um, Alex uh, summed up his view as as a privilege to be a politician in parliament but he wanted to say that politicians are human beings they're flawed and they make mistakes and we do change our minds forgiveness is important alex makes it his business not to leave anyone behind and he made this really quite beautiful comment about leadership and about failing in regards to his role in the Marriage Equality Act. He, he said that he failed, I think, for seven years in a row trying to get the Marriage Equality Act across, across, the, across the line. Uh, but he said every time he failed, he failed forward. And I think that's something I've learned from Alex's, um, Alex's story is that we all fail, but to learn from what that failure is and fail forward. It's a great, it's a great message. And the final message that um, Alex left all, all future leaders, you know, like most, most leaders on this program has a, have three things that they cling to. Alex's message was one singular message. Don't be afraid, have a go. Until next time listeners, thank you for listening.